before you. We live to you, our King. We stand in you. We stand for you. We stand as your redeemed. We live in you.
You are not a God created by human hands. You are not a God dependent on any mortal man. You are not a God in need of anything we can give by your plan. That's just the way it is. You are not a God created by human hands. You are not a God dependent on any mortal man. You are not Everything we can do. 
Father, we worship you because you are God alone. There is none beside you. And we've come today to hear you, to worship you, open our lives to you. We know that you are here with us. We are praying that you will work mightily in us and among us through your Holy Spirit. And we ask this. Through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Each year as our ministries are getting started, we take a few moments to, to uh, pray for people who are involved in the ministries, either in the church or through the church. And I suspect that many of you are involved in some kind of ministry uh, that's connected to the church. It might not take place in the church building. For instance, maybe you're a part of Royal Family Kids Camp or you deliver meals on wheels. Or it may be something that you do in, within the walls of the church. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, during the week. And we want, so if you're involved in a ministry of leading any kind of ministry, helping with the ministry or part of something, I want to ask you to stand and we want to pray for you. And if you're not sure, you probably are, so go ahead and stand. (laughs) We believe strongly that God guides and directs the church through the gifts that he's given his people. And so we want to say thank you for using your gifts, and we want to pray for you as you continue in ministry through the Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for every person standing here before us today. We know that you are pleased with their willingness to serve, with the spirit of humility in which they serve. And most of all, that they serve in a spirit of relying on you. We pray that you will bless every person with your grace and your strength for whatever tasks that may be before them. Help them to see the fruit of their service to you and to us and to others. When ministry is difficult, give them patience, stamina. Help them to see glimpses of fruit in whatever ministry they may have. And more than anything, Father... Help all of us in our ministry to realize that we are serving you. We are your hands and your feet, your voices, your eyes, your presence in a world and in a church that desperately needs you. So thank you for every person here. May your blessing rest upon them. And we ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We have the privilege of giving to God because he has blessed us immensely. As the ushers come, we invite you to give your tithes and offerings.
As we offer our prayers to God about burdens in our lives, things connected to us, if you'd like to use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, I invite you to join me. Father, we all wrestle with burdens. Anxiety weighs on us. Sometimes peace feels so elusive. Hope feels out of reach. Sometimes it's busyness or the pressure of expectations. Sometimes we forget about each other. We forget that our lives are interconnected with each other. Sometimes, Father, it's just a matter of us being self-centered. We come today asking for your forgiveness. And knowing that your word tells us that if we confess our sins, you're faithful, you're just... You forgive us our sins. We thank you. Father, our world is a sea of hurting people. We see the the hurt and the pain in people right around us. People who are grieving. And our prayer is that you would comfort them in their grief people who are struggling with issues of health. We pray for Bruce Brenneman and ask that you would continue to to touch him as he has come home from the hospital and faces some difficult days. We pray for Bill Roski as he goes through treatments and for Matt Bissett and Bev Rett and Micah Christensen as they go through treatments. Pray for Linda Roth and ask for your healing grace in her. We pray for Alton Shea and Isla Shea, for Dick Gould and Edna Howard, and ask that your mercy, your healing power would be at work in their bodies. And we continue to pray for Crystal Blake, for Emily Crickler, and pray for your healing upon them in their long-term illnesses. And for others who are on our hearts and our minds today, we place them in your hands and we do so confidently and expectantly because of who you are. Father, we continue to pray for those who are facing the, the most difficulty and pain from the Ebola virus. We pray that in your mercy, you will extend your hand to slow and stop the spread of the virus. We pray that you will protect your people all across West Africa, providing safety and shelter and food for all that you have created in love. 
We ask that you would grant wisdom, safety, courage to the people who have, who have willingly and courageously stepped in to help, to serve, to treat. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will use this tragedy to help people to see your love and mercy in the midst of pain. Father, we pray for all people who are dealing with terrorist attacks and, and bombings and just the pain of hatred and violence. We pray for our brothers and sisters, many of whom are caught in the middle, many of whom are targeted. And we ask that you would protect them and give them courage. And Father, we pray for the people of Japan who have who are feeling the grief and the loss from the volcanic eruption. We pray that you will, you will comfort all who are grieving and that you will bring your people as agents of love and help and grace in painful circumstances. Father, we thank you for Wes and Dana Brown and their willingness to serve you in Kenya. Bless their effort as they support others and as they work there and pray that they will know your power upon them in all that they do. Father, we pray today with confidence because you are the almighty God and nothing is too great for you. We pray with joy because we know that you hear our prayers and you desire to help us even more than we desire you to help us. We pray with hearts of gratitude because you've already done so much and you've promised to do so much more. Father, let our lives be so fully open to you that our natural default is obedience and worship. We pray this because of Christ Jesus. The one who has come in flesh, gone to the cross and risen from the grave and has ascended to be with you and has promised to come back for us. We pray this in his strong and powerful name. Amen. The first scripture reading is taken from Psalm 119.9-16. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statues as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. The second scripture reading is taken from Second Timothy, Timothy chapter 3 verses 10 to 17. You however know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose 
faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and, and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom, from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All, scriptures, all scripture is God-breathed, God-breathed and is useful to, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Take a moment to stand, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship this morning. Okay, so I don't know which version of the Bible you tend to read, what you have with you, but I brought with me a few of the different Bibles that I have in my office, and this is a sampling of them. I have more, too. They are a a variety of uh, translations. I have a a Hebrew Old Testament Bible, a Greek New Testament here. Uh, Someone asked me if I had a Spanish Bible. I don't have a foreign language Bible, but I'm sure some of you might. There are uh, Bibles that are study Bibles, like this one's kind of heavy. The Life Application Bible, the Jerusalem Bible is one that's done for the Catholic Church. Of course, the King James, always in black. I don't know why that is, but it seems to always be the case. There is, um, this one is an interesting one. It's the Reader's Digest Bible. It is the condensed version of the scriptures. The whole point of that was that the thinking was... If we could make the scriptures read more like a novel, people might be more apt to read it. The intent was correct. It didn't catch on. Maybe that's a good thing, but um, not a lot of these were were sold and bought, but I do have one of those. Kind of condenses the stories. This is a, uh, like called the Life of Christ in Stereo. It is a, uh, it's it's the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, put into one story. So all the different four Gospels are woven into one linear story. Kind of gives you a feel of how they all connect with each other. You can probably tell what era this Bible came out of. This is the 70s uh, version of the one way, the Jesus people New Testament. Uh, This is the look of it, right? This is my most precious Bible. There's a note in the front of this that I've kept... It says, Dear Wesley, this little testament was given me by my grandma when I was a little girl, probably eight or ten years old. 
So now I will pass it on to you as a keepsake. I used to carry it to Sunday school. Love from Great Grandma Dingman, April 18, 1968. My grandma was born at about 1890. So this Bible probably was printed around 1900. It's more than 110 years old. And um, I knew my great-grandmother well. I was 24 years old when my great-grandmother died. My great-grandmother. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a precious possession for me. I don't use it a lot because it's so delicate, but also the print is so small I can hardly read it anymore, um, you know, doing this. But it's, it's one of my, you know, one of my keepsakes. And I keep it on my shelf in my office to remind me of the heritage that I have. This is another Bible, too, that's interesting to me that uh, I used in college. It is a well-worn Bible, as you can tell. And in fact, not a part of it is still connected to the binding. Oh, actually, the beginning page is, I guess. But this is the kind of Bible that uh, you you know what the preacher's preaching about. You just take that part with you. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's uh, Nehemiah today. Okay, I'll just take that part and uh, leave the rest of it home. And, you know, it's, it's all John. There it is. You pull it out. You take that with you. What struck me as I was thinking about this is how often we do that with the scriptures. We don't actually rip out the pages, though some people would. Thomas Jefferson created his own Bible where he didn't believe in the supernatural. So he created his Bible and he cut out all the parts of it that had anything to do with God being at work in this world. It was a very small Bible. And this is sort of symbolic of what a lot of us do with the scriptures. We read the part, we study the part, we we embrace the part that we like, that we understand, that speaks to us, and we ignore the rest of it. I think that's one of the reasons why so many people have a hard time reading through the whole Bible from beginning to end. In Genesis is okay, there's some good stories there. It kind of sometimes feels like a lifetime movie network when you read some of those, right? Uh, We probably shouldn't be telling our children some of those stories, quite frankly. But when you get then into Exodus, you start getting into laws, regulations, then you get into Leviticus, sacrifices. And I know so many people who at that point just kind of say, ah, I don't think I can do this. And you get into the first chapter, nine chapters of Chronicles, first Chronicles, and it's nothing but genealogies. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and they begat so-and-so, and they begat nine chapters of that. Most of us go, oh boy. And we tend to focus on the things that we like. And there are parts of Scripture that confuse us or parts of Scripture that just don't resonate right with us. They may embarrass us. They may make us angry, frustrated. And we have a tendency to say, I'll just ignore those parts of the Bible. And I'll focus my attention on what I want. And it's predominantly the parts of Scripture that make us feel good. Parts of scripture that we agree with that fits our theological perspective. And all the while we have forgotten that every word of the scripture is the word of God. In 2 Peter, he writes to the church and says everything that the prophets wrote, it was from God. Paul writes to Timothy and says, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is inspired by God. 
All of it. Not, the part we, not just the part we like. Not just the part that we fully understand. Not just the part that we feel like we've figured out. All of it. The problem is, because there are things in the Scripture that we don't understand, because there are parts of the Scripture that, quite frankly, are a bit confusing to us, and probably are a little bit embarrassing to us, we struggle to really grasp and believe that all of this is the Word of God. And there have been people through the centuries, probably more so in the last 300 years or so, who have attacked the Scriptures. And they've said, that can't be true, that's not possible, there's no way that could be. And we're going to cut it up, and we're going to put it into sections, and we're going to say, this is true, this is not. And what ends up happening is we keep the parts of Scripture that we like, and we throw out the rest. And then who becomes the measure of the authority of Scripture? It's us. If we like it, then it must be right. And if we don't like it, then it must not be the Word of God. But Paul says, all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, you know, you look at all these translations, you look at all of these Bibles, and, and you say, well, why are there so many? Shouldn't there be just one? Well, there are a couple reasons why there are so many. One is because we are translating the Scriptures from Greek, Hebrew, some Aramaic, into, in our case, English. If you've ever studied a foreign language, if you know a foreign language quite well, you have had the experience of, I know that word in Spanish, but I don't know the equivalent word in English. Dr. Roderer teaches on campus. I can't tell you how many times I've heard him say, okay, I know what I want to say. I know the word in French, but I can't think of what the English word is. And you, you may be thinking, some of you are, you know, were raised in other countries and you, English is not your first language. And I'm sure you experience that all the time. Try to, try to move from one language to another. It's not always precise. And so when you move from Greek, and this is, these are languages that we speak. These are dead languages. Biblical Hebrew, Biblical Greek, Aramaic. And, and we're trying to translate those and, and into English is not always easy. And people have different perspectives about it. And the other thing is the culture. The Old Testament was written centuries, centuries ago. Even if you, even if, if you believe in, in, the, in the earliest, latest part of the manuscripts, you're still talking about 3rd, 4th, 5th century B.C. There are a lot of things different about their culture from ours. First century Palestine, when Jesus lived and Paul wrote, a lot of differences from ours. That's one of the reasons why when we come to Scripture, there are things that we say, well, we don't believe that anymore. We don't believe that the earth is flat. We don't believe that the sun rises. We don't believe that that's how things happen. We have discovered that, it, that you describe that differently. There are different ways of doing that. Does that mean the scriptures are unreliable? No, it just means that people were writing in their culture at their time in the way that they knew. And we would write it a little differently in our culture and our time because of what we know. But the underlying truth is that it is still the inspired word of God. God gave people the freedom to write the scriptures in their own in their own way, 
in their own, through their own personality, but it's the Holy Spirit inspired them, and that's what made it different. It's one of the reasons why we need to be careful about how we describe the, the reliability and the authenticity of the Scriptures. We're continually wanting to put God and the Scriptures in a box and define everything the way so that we can totally understand it, so that it makes perfect sense to us and there are no more questions. It's either this or it's this. And God is continually reminding us that it's usually this and this. I mean, when you read the Scriptures, you, you're, you have to be in denial if you don't agree that there are some things that appear to be contradictions in the Scriptures. Paradoxes in the Scriptures. And the longer I live, the more I study the Scriptures, I'm coming to believe that all of the great things we believe about God and about life and about being followers of God, we have to understand intention. That two things that appear opposite to us are both true. God is fully sovereign. Human beings are fully responsible. They seem to be complete opposites. And yet when you read the scriptures, they are both true. And what it really comes down to is the mystery of God. If we could understand and explain every single thing in the scriptures, then we would be God. But instead God chooses to allow us the joy of exploration. Those aha moments when we read the scriptures and it comes alive for us. And something we didn't know, we now know. Something we hadn't seen, we now see. And those are glorious moments. And God has given us his word. He hasn't told us everything. He hasn't answered all of our questions. But he has given us his word that we need to know. If we believe that God is sovereign, if we believe that this is the inspired word of God, and we believe both of those things, then God has given us what he believes we need to know in the way we need to know it. And we can either believe that and trust it, or we can keep coming back to, well, I'm going to be the measure of whether it's right or true or not. And one of the questions that came up is, you know, as you ask questions about the scriptures, was, is the Bible really any different from any other religious literature in other cultures? Well, all you have to do is sit down and compare them, and you will see very quickly they are very different. And one of the things that makes our scriptures different and unique is, quite frankly, the messiness that is inherent within it. If you and I were to write a scripture, if you and I were to write a Bible about what it means to be a follower of God, I'm, I can guarantee you this is not what we would write. We change all kinds of things, right? I mean, we would change, you know, some people would live longer, some people would die sooner. Some people, uh, you know, there would be things about Jesus that we would change. We would change the fact that surely he should start his ministry earlier and live longer. We would certainly change what Paul writes about persecution, where he says if everybody who has is, who is embraced Christ is going to be persecuted, well, let's change that. 
We would change some of the things that Jesus says. It's pretty hard on rich people and religious people. That kind of strikes close to home. And you know, all that all the wine that's in the Bible, we'd certainly need to get rid of that, right? Turn that into water or grape juice or something, because that's uncomfortable for us. And we would change how the scripture speaks about God's great heroes, too, wouldn't we? I mean, let's face it. The great people of God, as they are portrayed in the scriptures, are far from perfect. I mean, they are fallen people. Noah, who it say, about whom it says he walked with God, has this great experience of the flood and the ark, and he's rescued, and he sees the great hand of God on his life. And it isn't very long before we find Noah in a drunken stupor and an unseemly situation. Abraham, another great man of God. Great man of faith, it tells us. Has wrestles with doubts so much that we have two instances in the scriptures where he puts the very, the very existence of his wife at risk. Because he is doubting God. And David, I mean, basically in one fell swoop, David pretty much just breaks all the Ten Commandments. Adultery, murder, lying, cheating. Just go down the road. And these are God's heroes. These are God's favorite people. We would definitely need to change that. But for me, that's what makes it the unique word of God. Is that people are real. People are, are, are really human when you read this story. We look at it and we say, yeah, I get that. We identify with it. They're not, they're not figures that have been created out of space that we say we have nothing in common with them. We read the scriptures and we see how real the people are who are in them. And it's that very messiness of the scriptures that, for me, adds credibility to uniqueness of a being, the inspired word of God. Because if it were not inspired and we were to make it up, we wouldn't do it that way. And the things that sometimes, the ways in which God is portrayed in scripture, we would certainly change too. I mean, you think about some of the things in the Old Testament that we find... That people say, God told me to do this, and God commands them to do it. And Scripture tells us that. And it makes us very uncomfortable, if not embarrassed. We would love to cut that stuff out. But God, in his wisdom, has left it in. Because it is his word. It is the unique word of God. It's not something that human beings created It is something that human beings wrote out of the inspiration of the Spirit. But the real question for us is really not so much, is the Word of God true and is it reliable? Because ultimately, it's an act of faith. Ultimately, we have to decide, are we going to believe that what Scripture says is true or not? The real point of Scripture is not to to prove its reliability. It is to help us know how to live as agents of God's kingdom on this earth. 
The whole point of the scripture is to change us, to transform us, to help us understand who God is, who we are, how we live in relationship with God and with each other. And so often we get wrapped up in the arguments about scripture. We ignore the scripture. And the point of scripture is to change us. God's word to us. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it tells us that all scripture is is God-breathed. Why? It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that servants of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have been given the scriptures so that we might be different people and so that we might be God's agents of change and good in the world that needs changing. In a world that needs good. We are agents of God's kingdom. It is is God coming to us in his word to teach us, to proclaim to us. In the earlier service, we had the children come up and, and they sang, Jesus loves me, this I know. How do we know that Jesus loves us? Because the Bible tells us so. How do we know that God is the Almighty One? Because the Bible tells us so. How do we know that we are created by God? Because the Bible tells us so. And the foundation of our faith, the foundation of knowing who we are, is rooted in the truth and the reliability of the inspired Word of God to change us, to work in us. I think often we... We are more concerned about proving the reliability of Scripture than we are about doing what Scripture says. Rick Warren says that Saddleback, they have a phrase that says, the only part of the Bible you believe is the part of the Bible that you do. I think there's something to that. I keep coming back to Mark Twain's statement. He says a lot of people, a lot of people get, are worried about the parts of the Bible they don't understand. He said, that's not what bothers me. What bothers me is the parts of the Bible I do understand. That's what makes me nervous. Because quite frankly, there is very little, it is minimal, the parts of the Bible that we simply say, I don't get that. We'll never be able to figure that out. And the reality is, the majority of Scripture is so clear. We just have to decide if we are going to obey and follow or not. Because the call of Scripture, the call of God, is not to use Scripture to to beat people over the head. The Scriptures are given to us so that we will be agents of God's kingdom on earth. So that we will be transformed people. David writes in Psalm 119, your word I've hidden in my heart. He doesn't just stop there. He says, your word I've hidden in my heart so that I might not sin against you. So that I might be a new person, a new creation. So that I might be transformed. And that means that we come to the scriptures in a spirit of humility. You know, often we come to the scriptures saying, in essence, to God, okay, prove yourself to me. And all the while, scripture is saying, surrender to me. 
we come with that spirit of, of humility. That we believe the scriptures, that God has something to teach us through his word. And we come with a heart that's open to him. Ready to listen and hear and be transformed through his Holy Spirit as the word speaks to us. And that means that we come with a sense of expectation about the scriptures. You know, so often we read the Bible and we don't really think it's going to say anything. And probably it's not if we have that spirit. But if we come to the reading of the scriptures expectantly, thinking, God, I don't know what you're going to say to me today, but I know you're going to say something. I think we'll find that more often than not, that's exactly what happens. He speaks into us, into our lives through the scriptures. I've also been thinking about our attitude toward reading the scriptures. Because sometimes it feels like the script, reading the scriptures, studying the scripture can become sort of, I don't want to know if drudgery is the right word. or It's something we feel like we have to do. It's something that's commanded of us so we better do it or we're going to be in trouble. But when we read the the scriptures, we find people talking about the Bible in completely different terms. The beginning psalm, the very first psalm, says, Blessed are those whose heart is turned to God. Blessed are those who delight in his word. Psalm 119, we just read... David says, I I delight in your word in the same way that I delight in great riches. That's joy. Paul writes to the Romans and says, your word brings encouragement and hope through your spirit. There's a sense of joy and delight in reading his word. You know, we did this today. We don't always do it at this service. But when the scripture scripture was done... Travis said, this is the word of the Lord. And the historic response to that, centuries old historic response is, thanks be to God. Now, I suspect there are some Sundays, if we were saying that every single week, we might scratch our heads and say, I guess thanks be to God. There are some passages of scripture where we're not sure we really ought to be giving thanks to God for that. But we do because it's all the word of God. And all of it has something to say into us, to us and speak into our lives. And we have delight and gratitude about it. About 30 years ago, before apartheid was abolished in South Africa, Bishop Desmond Tutu was speaking to the World Methodist Conference. And he was telling about how when the white people came to South Africa, he said the the, white, the blacks had the land and the white people had the Bible. And he said, and then the white people wanted to teach us to pray. And when the black people opened their eyes, the white people had the land and the black people had the Bible. And he held up his Bible and he kissed it tenderly. And he said, we shall see who got the better deal. And history has given us an answer. I don't know if you like post-apocalyptic literature. It's not exactly my favorite genre. Uh, I I like to read a lot of novels, but I don't typically read that science fiction, post-apocalyptic kind of literature. Maybe you do and you like it. But I'd never read any of that until a couple of years ago when my nephew published a book, a novel, 
that was based in the era of the post-apocalyptic time. And I read it. And I kind of enjoyed it. And he wrote a second one, and I read that one, and I enjoyed that too. And I was thinking about that. What made the difference? What made me want to read that? Because as soon as he sent it to me, I devoured it. Why? Because I had a relationship with the author. And if we want the scriptures to speak into our lives, have that sense of expectancy and and delight, it's about having a relationship with the author. It's about loving God and so therefore we love his word. And we believe that even when God speaks to us words that are hard and difficult and demanding, it's in our best interest because he loves us. And he cares for us. That's why he gives us his word. To change us and to transform us into new creatures. For years, Emile Caillet was a professor at Princeton University. In his book, Journey into Light, he tells the story of his coming to faith. He was raised in the latter part of the 19th century in a a very naturalistic home in France. Nothing about God or religion. But it was ingrained in him, and this was a part of the culture, that everything was just getting better. This idea of the progressive nature of life, that if we just work hard enough, if we just just give ourselves enough to it, the world's getting better and better and better. And then he was drafted into the army in World War I. And the trenches, with their mud and blood and death, shattered that perspective. And he became very hardened toward life. He was injured in the war and he went into a hospital. And during his convalescence, he he met a, a nurse there who cared for him. And they fell in love and they got married. And on the night of their wedding, he said to her, I want you to promise me just one thing. That you will never speak about religion to me or in our home. She said, okay, I promise. He went to the University of Paris. And uh, as a part of his his routine, he, he started writing in a little notebook things that came to him that he thought were important. Something he read that really spoke into his heart, he'd write it down. Something he heard someone say that really touched him, he'd write it down. And he filled up this notebook with all of these sayings. And he called it the little book that understands me. He carried this book with him everywhere. And one day, he was just feeling the weight and the stress and the pressure of life. And he was, he was despairing. And he thought, if I ever need this book, this is the day. And he went to the park. And he sat down on a bench. And he opened up this notebook. And he began to read what he'd written there. And he read the first entry. And he thought, why didn't I write that? It doesn't mean anything. And he went to the second entry and he the same thing. This is, this is just nonsense. And the third page and the fourth page and the tenth page and the twenty-fifth page. And everything he read was meaningless. He eventually got up and he went home at the point of suicide. He walked into his apartment and his wife said to him, Guess what, what I did today? And half-heartedly he said, What? 
She said, well, I, I took the baby out for a stroll in the stroller, as she typically did. They lived in this little tiny apartment, had this little baby, and she would often take the baby out just to give him time to think and to work and study. And she said, I was pushing the stroller along the street, and all of a sudden, the pavement turned to cobblestone. And you can imagine what the baby was dealing with as I rolled this stroller over the cobblestone. And so I looked for the first place to get off of it, and I saw a gate. And I went through the gate, back into a little garden. And back in that garden was a Huguenot church. They had hidden the churches in places where they were less likely to be found in the 16th century because of persecution. And she said, on a whim, I, I went in. And the pastor was there, and we talked. And for some reason, I asked him, do you have a, do you have a Bible in French? He said, yes. And he gave it to me. And Kaye stopped her and he said, you have a Bible? You have a Bible in French? She said, yes. He said, give it to me. And he took it. And he said, I spent the whole rest of that night, all through to the next morning, reading the Bible. And declaring over and over and over again, this is the book that understands me. This is the book that understands me. Because it's the unique word of God. So my question for us today is not, can we prove that the Bible is true? But rather, because it's the inspired word of God, what are we doing about it? Are we reading it? Studying it? Immersing ourselves in it? Letting God use his word to transform us and change us into the people we were created to be. Father, open our eyes to your word, our hearts to your word. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please stand as we sing together. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I am with you, oh, be not dismayed. For I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand. Upheld by my gracious omnipotent hand. 
ask you to do two things this week, maybe hopefully beyond this week. However much you read the scripture, whatever that may be, I want to challenge us, myself included, to add 10 minutes to that. If you don't read the scripture on a regular basis, then read it 10 minutes. If you read 15, read 25. If you read 30, read 40. If it's the word of God... If it truly is the inspired word of God, we want to immerse ourselves in it. And the second thing is that as you read, ask God to give you a humble, expectant heart. A delight in reading his word. So that whatever he says to us through his word, we will receive it as a gift from God. And as you go and read... May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.